Church, we are continuing our exposition through the book of Exodus. And believe it or not, we are nearing the end. This is the penultimate sermon before we try and finish off Exodus, Lord willing, uh, in next month, hopefully, and when we get to chapters 39 and 40. And to, today, we are in chapters 37 and 38. And you're going to need your Bibles. Uh, so if you don't have one, you can grab one of those in the Black Pew Bibles in front of you. Um, and we're going to be in chapters 37 and 38. We are going to, you're going to need it in front of you because we're going to read long portions of the text. Some of it will be familiar to us, and some of it, hopefully, we can pick out uh, what is different when it comes to these, these two chapters. Uh, we, in these last few chapters in Exodus, you don't need the, 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 yeah, you don't need it on the screen right now. Um, in these last few chapters in Exodus, it's important to remember that most of what is happening at the end of Exodus is about the worship of God. And if you've been paying attention at all to Exodus as we've gone through it, this should come as no surprise. This is where Exodus has been heading uh, towards all this time as we've gone through this book. When Israel was still in Egypt, God had already declared his intentions. He said, let my people go. Why? That they might serve me and worship me. So it can be argued that ever since leaving Egypt, ever since covenanting with God, that has been the focus of Exodus. It is focused on worship. In chapters 25 through 31 of Exodus, God gave instructions to Israel on how he wants to be worshipped. Then in chapters 32 through 34, we saw Israel give false, sinful worship with the incident of the golden calf. And now in chapters 35 through 40, it is, them, it is Israel preparing to worship this is going to be the great climax of Exodus. It is that they build the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord will come down and they will bow their heads in worship. So what I'm going to do today as we look at chapters 37 and 38, and this is something we often do, is that I'm just going to walk through our passage because it's a lot of words, but periodically stop so that we can pay attention to a couple things that are going to maybe stand out for us. And at the very end, I want to zero in on one phrase and spend our time looking at one phrase in these two chapters. And so maybe as we're reading along, you're going to want to maybe guess, what is the phrase that Pastor Steve is going to talk about. Um, so if you were here last week, you'll remember that chapters 35 through 40 is a very long section that virtually mirrors the material we studied back in chapters 25 through 30. God gave Moses in chapters 25 through 30 very careful instructions on how he is to be worshipped, how they are to construct the tabernacle. They were blueprints that God gave. They were the designer's plans and we worked through the meaning of each piece of the tabernacle furniture back then, last year. We, we talked about what, what is the meaning of the Ark of the Covenant. What is the, its, its significance? 
what's it all about for the table and the lampstand and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offerings. And now, as we get to Exodus 35 through 40, we come and we meet these same instructions almost all over again, verbatim. Uh, This time, it isn't a list of works to be done, but a record of work concluded and complete. It goes from instruction earlier in Exodus to construction here in chapters 35 to 40. And we saw last week, for those of you who were here last week, that Israel obeyed the law. That Israel obeyed God's instructions and they obeyed word by word, line by line, precept upon precept, they obeyed and it showed that Israel was truly repentant and walking with the Lord. And this obedience continues in chapter 37, so follow along with me as we begin reading with the construction of the ark. Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half was its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside and made a molding of gold around it. And he cast for it four rings of gold for its four feet, two rings on its one side and two rings on its other side. And he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold and put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark. And he made a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half was its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And he made two cherubim of gold. He made them of hammered work on the two ends of the mercy seat, one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, he made the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, with their faces one to another toward the mercy seat were the faces of the cherubim. Now, I know a moment ago I mentioned that the instructions here uh, or the, the construction here in chapters 35 through 40 are repeated almost verbatim from chapters 25 through 30. But that's not quite true because if you have a very good memory, you might remember the sermons from nearly a year ago and how chapter 25 began actually with the instructions for the Ark of the Covenant. And it isn't until later in chapter 26 that God gives instructions for the tabernacle. Now here in chapter 35 to 40, we, in our chapter right now, in chapter 37, we realize that they, if we look back, that they started with the tabernacle and then now they are constructing the ark. In other words, the order of construction is reversed from the earlier chapters. Now, you might think to me, what's the big deal? It's so long anyways. Let's mix it up for some interesting reading. But certainly the instructions back in 25 through 30 can be seen as theological in nature. It talks about the Ark of the Covenant first because it's the most important and most significant. While chapters 35 through 40 have a practical nature, it's the order in which things are built. So he began with talking about the tent And now talks about creating the Ark of the Covenant. Because that's normally how we build things, right? Or that's normally how we arrange our homes. You don't 
Think about building a home and you first purchase all the furniture. And then think about building a house. No, you start with a house first and then you fill it with the furniture. But even more, the order is reversed because the ark is of such a holy magnitude. Bezalel couldn't just be crafting this ark of the covenant out in the open. I know the text doesn't say it right here explicitly, but I think we can assume that Bezalel was hard at work inside the tent crafting the Ark of the Covenant, perhaps far away from peering eyes. Now think about it. Virtually every Israelite for centuries would go their entire lives without ever seeing the Ark of the Covenant. Who saw the ark? Well, Bezalel, he created it. He maybe had some helpers with him. Certainly the high priest would go in once a year to the Holy of Holies to offer worship. And when the tent of the tabernacle would move, they would, the Levites, certain Levites would wrap up the ark of the covenant to move it. It would be covered so that no one could see it. It was shrouded in mystery. And surely there's something significant for us. It was just as easy to believe in an ark they could never see as it is for us to believe in a God whom we cannot see. And there was an element of faith that they heard about it. Generations upon generations, they would say, there's an ark in there. Just letting you know, there is an ark. I know you've never seen it, but there is an ark there. Whether it was in the tent or when Solomon built the temple, they couldn't see it, but they knew of it. And they knew what it represented. And so they were being prepared all along for the type of worship that God would want. For he's a God who is to be heard and not seen. So Bezalel constructs, constructs the ark. Let's continue in verse 10. He also made the table of acacia wood to do... Two cubits was its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold and made, nothing of go- and, a, and made a molding of gold around it. And he made a rim around it, a hand breadth wide, and made a molding of gold around the rim. He cast his four rings of gold and fastened the rings to the four corners of its four legs. Close to the frame were the rings, as holders for the poles to carry the table. He made the poles of acacia wood to carry the table and overlaid them with gold, and he made the vessels of pure gold that were to be on the table, its plates and dishes for incense, and his bowls and flagons with which to pour drink offerings. He also made the lampstand of pure gold. He made the lampstand of hammered work, its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers were of one piece with it. And there were six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one, of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made with almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself were four cups made with almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out of it. Their calyxes and their branches were of one piece with it. The whole of it was a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. And he made its seven lamps and its tongs and its trays of pure gold. He made all its utensils out of a talent of pure gold. So this is the lampstand. We might be familiar 
today what would later be called the menorah. So we see those, the, the three, the six-pronged stand here, the lampstand. And uh, there's an, you know, a, a very elaborate arrangement of oils to keep it lit. Now in verse 25, he made the altar of incense of acacia wood. Its length was a cubit and its breadth was a cubit. It was square and two cubits was its height, its horns of one piece with it. He overlaid it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. And he made a molding of gold around it and made two rings of gold on it under its molding on two opposite sides of it as holders for the poles with which to carry it. And he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. He made the holy anointing oil also and the pure fragrant incense blended as by the perfumer. He made the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood. Five cubits was its length and five cubits its breadth. It was square and three cubits was its height. He made horns for it on its four corners. Its horns were of one piece with it and he overlaid it with bronze. And he made the utensils of the altar, the pots, the shovels, the basins, the forks, and the firepans. He made all its utensils of bronze. And he made for the altar a grating, a network of bronze with its ledge extending halfway down. He cast four rings on the four corners of the bronze grating as holders for the poles. He made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with bronze. And he put the poles through the rings on the sides of the altar to carry it with them. He made a hollow with boards. He made the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering woman who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. All right, up to now, the furniture items described are made all according to spec, meaning it was made all according to the specifications that God had given from chapters 25 through 30. It is almost word for word the same. There are some verb tense changes, but beyond that, maybe some, a couple of omissions, but beyond that, it's almost all the same. But in verse 8, we see something that we haven't seen before. It's this fascinating comment that we probably skip over in our Bible reading plans because we think, I've already read this. We read that there were women serving, ministering at the entrance of the tabernacle. And we know that it's not a one-time occurrence, that these women ministering at the, at the entrance of the tabernacle wasn't just for the construction time for the tabernacle. Because we read several centuries later, we read of the same practice in 1 Samuel 2.22. In 1 Samuel 2, there's a scandalous mention there of Eli and his sons who were laying with the women serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. But what I want us to notice is that this practice of women ministering at the tent of meeting at the entrance, there were women serving here at the entrance for centuries. How were they chosen? And what were they doing? We don't know. It's not quite clear. But one commentator speculates they quite possibly volunteered or maybe they were paid with a portion of the sacrifices to help with utensil cleanup or water resupply or food preparation or guiding and assisting and ministering to other women worshipers. Whatever it is that they did, it's worth noting that even though the priests and the Levites who served in the tabernacle were all men, it was not as if women were forbidden from playing a role in the tabernacle worship. 
Now, I think we would be going too far to make too many exact parallel applications for today, but certainly we see something significant. That even as we come to the New Testament worship, and though it instructs that pastors and elders are to be qualified men, it does not mean that women have no part to play in the service of God. There are all sorts of ways in which they are to minister to the body. In fact, they are essential to the church and the service of worship. Even more, these women are specifically commended because what? They gave up their mirrors, these bronze mirrors for the purpose of the tabernacle. Now, how did these women have mirrors? Well, Egypt was well known at that time for making cosmetic objects. Particularly, they would make these discs made of bronze that they would polish to a sheen so that people could look into a mirror and have a mirror for themselves. So how did these women have mirrors? Well, most likely they, they didn't have them when they were in Egypt. They were slaves. And so you can follow along with me in my sanctified imagination of what it was like for them, but I can imagine that these women used to take care of their, Israel, uh, their Egyptian mistresses. You know, that they had to, maybe every morning they got them ready and got their hair ready in the morning and that there was that bronze mirror. And every night they would like help them with their clothes or whatever it was and they would see that bronze mirror right there. And maybe perhaps even day after day they were like, it'd be cool if I had a mirror. Now imagine how they must have felt when they left Egypt and their mistresses handed them those mirrors, those bronze mirrors. But now at Mount Sinai, Moses calls for gifts for the tabernacle. And maybe one of them said, I want to give to the tabernacle. I want to give. It's on my heart to give to the Lord. And they look inside their tent and they say, I'm going to give that mirror. I'm going to give that bronze mirror. And maybe she called up her friend, I mean, uh, talked to her friends and said, hey, I'm going to give the mirror. You have one too, right? And they were like, yeah, let's give mirrors. And all together they said, let's give mirrors. Because they didn't care about looking at themselves. They wanted to glorify, the God, glorify God. And there they remained at the entrance of the tabernacle, ministering to others. For them, a day in God's court was better than a thousand elsewhere. For them, they would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell anywhere else. And for that, these women go down in history for their sacrificial service. Let's continue on in verse 9 of chapter 38. And he made the court from the south side of the hangings of the court were of fine twine linen, a hundred cubits, their 20 pillars and their 20 bases were of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. For the north side, there were hangings of 100 cubits, their 20 pillars, their 20 bases were of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. And for the west side were hangings of 50 cubits, their 10 pillars and their 10 bases, the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. And for the front to the east, 50 cubits. The hangings of one side of the gate were 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases, and so for the other side. On both sides of the gate of the court were hangings of 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three bases. All the hangings around the court were of fine twine linen, and the bases for the pillars were of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. 
the overlaying of their capitals was also of silver, and all the pillars of the court were filleted with silver. And the screen for the gate of the court was embroidered with needlework in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. It was 20 cubits long and five cubits high in its breadth, corresponding to the hangings of the court. And their pillars were four in number. Their four bases were of bronze, their metal, their hooks of silver, and the overlaying of their capitals and their fillets of silver. And all the pegs for the tabernacle and all the court all around were of bronze. These are the records of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the testimony, as they were recorded at the commandment of Moses, the responsibility of the Levites under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest, and Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord commanded Moses. And with him was Oholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and designer and embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen." Now, what we're going to have in the next paragraph, beginning in verse 24, this last paragraph is something that we also haven't seen previously. It's a detailed record of the most precious items donated for this tabernacle. So it's gold and silver and bronze. Now, why does Moses include this whole section detailing all these things? I mean, the the details of the construction of the tabernacle are already kind of tedious. And we might think to ourselves, Moses, what's the big deal with all these numbers that are going to come up? Uh, do we have to take, you know, a class on accounting? You know, what is going on? But Moses includes this to show that someone was keeping track of their generous gifts. It was a financial statement of sort an accounting of how much was given, and it was kind of like a, a year-end giving receipt. And it was very generous. One ton of gold, three tons of silver, over two tons of bronze. Everything is measured, as we will see, by the shekel of the sanctuary. This was probably a standard measurement weight to make sure, to, to, to make sure that every, every piece of gold is accounted for. Everything is weighed appropriately. In other words, Moses wanted to make sure everything was precise. Every gift was accounted for. And it's clear Israel wanted to exercise some good stewardship here. Records had to be kept. And what happens to every penny needed to be seen. And so we see in verses 24 to 31, all the gold that was used for the work in all the construction of the sanctuary, the gold from the offering, the 29 talents, and 730 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. The silver from those of the congregation who were recorded was 100 talents of 1,775 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. A becca, a head that is half a shekel by the shekel of the sanctuary. For everyone who was listed in the records from 20 years old and upwards for 603,550 men. The hundred talents of silver were for casting the bases of the sanctuary and the bases of the veil. A hundred bases for the hundred talents, a talent a base. And of the 1,775 shekels, he made hooks for the pillars and overlaid their capitals and made fillets for them. The bronze that was offered was 70 talents and 2,400 shekels. With it, he made the bases for the entrance of the tent of meeting, the bronze altar and the bronze grating for it, and all the utensils of the altar the bases around the court, and the bases of the gate of the court, all the pegs of the tabernacle, and all the pegs around the court. All right. Well, with the remainder of our time, 
what are we going to talk about? And uh, sometimes I, I love preaching these long passages because you don't have to say too much. <laughs> but again, we must remember that this is about the worship of God here in this tabernacle. So rather than going through each of the furniture items again and reviewing what it was all about and what it all stood for and the importance of them, um, which we already did previously, I just thought we'd focus on one phrase. And in a passage like this, as we've done already, you look at what stands out, what is different from the previous passage. And what we see in chapter 38, verse 21, is that it reads that these are the records of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the testimony. That's what I want to focus on, that phrase, the tabernacle of the testimony. Moses seems to emphasize it, doesn't he? He says, these are the givings, these are the offerings for the tabernacle. And by the way, it's called the tabernacle of the testimony. Now, what you call, what you call a building really matters, right? Sometimes we have a, a wonderful names for buildings. Um, you know, four niners used to play at a place called Candlestick Park. What a wonderful name. Why? Because there were these candlestick birds that would fly around in that area. But now we're kind of commercialized and we have really bad names for places. Like there is an arena called KFC Yum Arena. Did you know that? There is also an Acrisure Stadium in Pittsburgh. And of course, Chase Center doesn't sound that bad because you're chasing after a ball, but it's really about a bank. But what do you name your place matters? We call this place where we are meeting right now the sanctuary. I think that's an appropriate word. This is a place that we are set apart, sanctified for holy work that we are about. The room next door, as was mentioned earlier, there's a room over here called the Agape Room. Why is it called the Agape Room? I'm, I'm not really sure, actually. But it was just named that because we're about love, right? But here in Exodus, the tabernacle is called the tabernacle of the testimony. And this appears nowhere else in Exodus. Actually, it only shows up four other times. And it's both in these, these mentions in the book of Numbers. So this is a very special term. It's unique. And we have to ask ourselves what it communicates. Because the idea of the tabernacle of the testimony is that it testifies. It speaks to something. It declares something. And the name helps us not only to understand Old Testament worship, but helps us to understand our worship, I think. So to what ways, so to what does the tabernacle testify? And so very quickly, let me go through three things, three ways. First, the tabernacle testifies to God's word. The tabernacle testifies to God's word. Remember what is very central at the most important item in the tabernacle. What is it? It is the Ark of the Covenant. And did you know that the Ark of the Covenant is called also, in, throughout Exodus, the Ark of the Testimony. It's also called the Ark of the Testimony because of what's inside the Ark. Now, what are the three items inside the Ark? You guys know it? This is like Bible trivia time, right? What are the three items inside the Ark? Uh, there's Aaron's staff. We remember the Ten Commandments. We forget that there was manna inside the ark as well. But it's the Ten Commandments because earlier in Exodus, earlier in Exodus, God says, build the ark and in it you shall place 
the testimony. What is the testimony? The Ten Commandments, the very words of God spoken to his people, talking about and testifying to a covenant relationship. This says something very powerful about their worship. It says the focus on this tabernacle, it is a place, yes, this tabernacle is a place where sacrifices happen, but it is the tabernacle of the testimonies, of the testimony because it is a place of God's word. It is a place in which God has spoken, and it is a place where God speaks to his people. The priests were to perform sacrifices, yes, but the priests were also called to teach the law. Second Chronicles 15.3 tells us that the tabernacle worship was a place of testifying, proclaiming God's word, and for us, we might seem, you know, we're kind of from the Protestant tradition, and we're kind of like, oh, of course, you know, every week I come to church and hear a guy ramble on and to teach God's word. But preaching, this expositional preaching is important. Opening up God's word is central, but do you realize how unique that is? You go to other religious traditions. You go to a Hindu temple. You go to a Buddhist temple. You even go to uh, a mosque. And you go there, and what's it about? It's about the ritual. It's about the things you do, and it's, a, it's about uh, maybe prayers. But there isn't something quite like the sermon. Even in the Roman Catholic Church, it's the ritual that is the thing. The priest might say a short homily, but... It's about the, the water and the genuflection and, and whatever happens at communion. Where else do you go in the modern world where you graduate from school and week after week you go and hear someone teach? I mean, yeah, you go to conferences and maybe you go to TED Talks, but where do you go regularly to hear the same person teach about the same book every week and you're expected to do that for the rest of your life. This doesn't happen outside of the Judeo-Christian tradition. The sermon is not stolen from the pagans. The sermon is not inherited from the Enlightenment. It came from Judaism, which developed a, a practice of exegesis to expound God's word. Levites taught the law in Deuteronomy 33.10. Ezra read the law and gave the, sen and, uh, gave the sense in Ezra chapter 8. And in the New Testament... John the Baptist preaches, Jesus preaches, the, apostle pre the apostles, they all preach, Paul preached, and Paul told Timothy in his final words to him, preach the word. Why? Because God has spoken and still speaks. And all of it goes back to the tabernacle of the testimony. This tabernacle where God's covenant uh, obligations were to be known and heeded and obeyed. The tabernacle testifies to God's word. And second, the tabernacle testifies to God's presence. It testifies to God's presence. This was the place uh, where Israel was saying, God is meeting with us. Yes, it's only the high priest that was allowed in the holy place, holy of holies. But he was the mediator to the rest of the nation. And we'll see later on that the glory cloud will descend upon the tabernacle. And it represented that God was with his people that God's presence was with his people. Um, and that's what all the furniture in the tabernacle is all about. Why is there a table with bread on it and a lampstand? It's to say, God is here. He's 
setting up home with us. His presence is here. The light's on. The candle's on. Why? To tell us that God is present with his people. Somebody is home. And certainly that happens when the church gathers together on a Sunday. Yes, the Holy Spirit dwells in every single believer. But it's clear in Scripture, Matthew 18, 20, which we heard from in at Sunday Evening Fellowship, it says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And Jesus is not referring to when two or three gather together at Phil's Coffee to share prayer requests with one another. That's not what it's talking about. The picture there is of the church assembled. There is something wonderful when we gather together for worship because Christ's presence is with us in a unique way. He is among us, sanctifying us, stimulating us to love and good deeds. And finally, the tabernacle testifies to God's grace. I know my time is short, so we'll just touch on this really quick. The fact that the tabernacle would be built already testifies to the grace of God. After the golden calf, the fact that God would call on them to still build is already the grace of God. But even more, the tabernacle was a place for what? For the worshiper to come and offer sacrifices. Why? For the atonement of their sins, for the forgiveness of sins. They would come to the entrance, and then they would offer up their, uh, their sacrifice on the bronze altar. That's what it was there for, for the forgiveness of sins, for the atonement of sin. So it's not very hard to connect all these dots, right? We see that the tabernacle of the testimony was a place for God's word. The tabernacle of the testimony was, was testifying to God's presence and to God's grace, And all of that pointed forward to a greater reality. The tabernacle finds its perfect and final fulfillment in Christ. The grace of God in sending us his son, Jesus Christ, for the atonement of our sins. Jesus is our tabernacle. He is the logos, the word made flesh that tabernacled among us full of grace and truth. This really is good news, isn't it? God could have chosen to become flesh as a judge and executioner, and all of us would be found guilty before him and sentenced to everlasting punishment, but he did not come in the flesh that way. The word of God became flesh to be gracious to us. The word of God became flesh so that this grace would lead him to the cross to die on behalf of sinners so that anyone who trusts in him would have eternal life. And so it's my prayer for our church that week after week, this cumulative effect of our coming to worship that we could come and, and, and just anticipate, come with anticipation to hear from Christ. We should come with anticipation to be with Christ we should come with anticipation to experience Christ's grace together as a church family. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, in these final chapters of Exodus, we know that there are so many, there is so much for us to cover, and yet we give thanks and that it tells us and points us and is useful for changing our lives, for teaching and rebuking and correcting that we may go in the right direction. And so, Father, we ask that our worship here at Redeemer Bible Fellowship, that we could be 
a testimony, that this would be a place where your word is central. This would be a place where your word is sung and prayed. This would be a place in which it would be obvious that you're here among us. And this would be a place in which your grace is exalted. And so, Father, we ask that we would be a church that, would, that could testify to your glory. Uh, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.